0: I get surprised and amazed over and over again at how different God's plan for growing a church is from my plan for growing a church. Now we keep thinking that if we want to grow the church, we need to show the world that we're as cool as they are and we get it like they do and we need to make our music sound like what they want to sound like and we should preach to them what they want to hear And over and over again, the Bible says something very different. He says, no, to grow your church, become different from the world. Be so different that people are impressed when they walk in the door. And be so far from pride that you're dependent in prayer upon God. And the thing that keeps blowing my mind every time I read it is, if you want to grow your church, he says, tell them things they don't want to hear. And then he lays them out to tell them this, right? Because the word of God has the power, the gospel of Jesus has the power to to drive many away and the power to draw many in. And there are many that he would love to come and hear this word. In fact, he'd love for everyone to be saved. Uh, So we're going to see that on full display for the next two weeks. We're going to look at a text that has a reputation of being unpopular in the New Testament, one of the least popular texts in the New Testament. Uh, But the logic of the text, I don't want you to miss, he actually outlines some of these unpopular things as his plan for growing a church and bringing more people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're going to spend the next two weeks in the second chapter of 2 Timothy, taking a break from some of the series that we do. We finished up Genesis in two weeks. God willing, I hope to start a series for you on the Psalms of Ascent. But in the meantime, some of our ladies in women's Bible studies studied 1 Timothy last week, and they loved studying it, but they left with questions. Lots of them had questions for me. Enough questions that when my wife did a survey at the end of that Bible study, I asked her, "Hey, would you, would you put in that survey, does studying 1 Timothy make you want to hear it preached more or less? And we would think they would have all said, well, less, because we've studied it now. We want to move on to something else. But every single one of them said, it makes me want to hear it preached more. I want clarity on what this word says. And so this is in part for those of you that want clarity on this text. You read it, you say, what does that mean? I want some help with that. And with a confidence that God will use it to bless us. We're going to read 1 Timothy, the whole second chapter But I'm only going to preach to you today on verses 8 through 10. And then next week, I'll come back, God willing, and preach on verses 11 through 15. Still, I want you to hear the whole chapter so that you hear the context. Here's God's word. May he bless it as we read it. He says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. These are the words of the Lord, and every last one of them is good for his people. And if you're a Christian, you need to know why all of that is in your Bible. So we're going to take our time over the next two weeks and go through that second paragraph, through those words, through that whole passage. The Spirit of God works powerfully to fulfill the Great Commission by making us, his people, into peaceful and quiet spirited people. This is the goal of the whole thing, and he says this in the first few verses. I'll unpack the first paragraph for you because I want you to see the connection between the first and the second. Uh, now, first, Paul says he is urging us to be prayerful Christians and quiet-spirited Christians. He says, I urge that all sorts of prayers be made for all people, especially for those who are in authority, and the lives we lead. He says, I want them to be peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. So he wants the people of the church, he wants us to be full of prayer, and he wants us to have peaceful quiet spirits that, that, that exude into our lives and our lifestyles to show how peaceful and quiet our spirits are. Now, you might ask, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a peaceful and quiet spirit? Maybe the best illustration of it is in Psalm 131. Uh, the psalmist says, "'O oh Lord, I'm not considering things too lofty for me. I've calmed and quieted my spirit.'" And he gives an example you might find strange. He says, like a weaned child with its mother. Now, if you've ever been around kids or been in a daycare, if you've held a kid while its mom is near, you know this dynamic. If a child is still nursing or it hasn't been long since the child was nursing, And you're holding the child and the mother is over there. The child's going to be fussy, right? Because the child wants milk. The child sees mom and goes, and so you can be holding a baby and the baby is so happy and you're there. And then mom comes around and the baby hears mom's voice and the baby's not happy anymore, right? Baby wants to go back to mom. So this is a baby that is hungry for milk. And you know it because anytime mom is around, she fusses and she makes it known. A weaned child is different a weaned child has had that desire for that milk quelled and, and quieted. Now she knows how to drink from a bottle or now she's eating food. And so that is not such an urgent need in her heart anymore. And so this child can play on her mom's knee, can sit next to her mom without fussing, without, without any kind of eruption, right? This is a content child who is not filled with the desire for its mother's milk. And he says, Lord, my soul has become like that. I used to be so restless. I used to fret all the time because I wanted things and I wasn't getting them. And now, Lord, I, I know you. And I don't have all the things I want and I'm not perfectly happy because you haven't come back yet, but my soul is, is learning contentment and learning satisfaction And one of the results of that is that you just become a less fussy person, like that child who learns how to be near its mother, be content and happy. Now, Paul wants us to lead those kind of lives and have those kind of hearts and be full of prayer for a very important reason. He says this in verses three and four. He says it's good, it pleases God. And the reason it pleases God, verse 4, is because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So you see the connection there. If we can live prayer-filled, peaceful-hearted, quiet-spirited lives, that helps the Great Commission. It helps more people come into the kingdom of God. It helps more people come to a knowledge of the truth. Our hearts are part of God's plan to reach the nations with the gospel. And so your heart becoming content and prayer-filled is part of his plan to reach the nations with the gospel. And so Paul then is using a strong word like urge. I urge that you pray for everyone, and I urge that you live a peace-filled, quiet, and godly life. That means that all of these words are essential to bringing people to Jesus Christ. There's a connection between the first and second paragraph, second paragraph beginning at verse 8. He comes back to it at verse 8 and says, I desire then, so because of what's in the first paragraph, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. And then he begins to outline what a prayer-filled, quiet-spirited life would look like for us. So, paragraph two is a picture of what it would look like if we lived in paragraph one. Make sense? If, if we were to say to the Lord, I've calmed and quieted my spirit before you. I'm full of prayer and my spirit is content before you. I'm not, I'm not fussy and running around to try to get all the things I want. Practically in our lives and when we gather together, it would look like the second Paragraph. So we're diving into the kind of people the Lord wants to make us into in order to reach our neighbors, our families, anyone who walks in these doors and doesn't know Jesus Christ in order to reach them with the gospel. He gives specific instructions to men and to women. And at first, it's instructions that would apply to everyone, but it was particular to men and particular to women. First bit of instruction he gives is to the men. Men, if we were to live with quiet spirits. What would that look like? Well, we'd pray, and we wouldn't let our prayers be hindered by anger, quarreling, or immorality. This is what he says, I want men everywhere then to lift holy hands in prayer without anger or quarreling. Now, those instructions are particularly for The worship service, when we gather, this is what we should do. Uh, But as you can see, they spill over into life as well. His lifestyle from Monday to Saturday is going to affect his prayers offered here on Sunday. Uh, In that world, and for most of history, uh, people prayed in the exact opposite position that we pray in. When we pray, we fold our hands, close our eyes, and we bow our head. And a lot of times we sit down or we kneel. Uh, When they prayed, they stood up, they looked up, they opened their eyes and they lifted their palms up to heaven like this. It's a very opposite position. Now, you don't have to pray one way or another, but this is what he means when he says, those hands you are lifting up in prayer, they need to be, they need to be holy hands, right? So whether you fold them or whether you lift them, he says they need to be holy hands. Not prayers that are hindered by how angry you were with everyone in your life this week. Uh, Not prayers that are hindered by the quarrel you're having with that other person in the church or in your life. Not prayers that are hindered by a lack of holiness in your life, walking in immorality and not turning from it. Don't, Don't let your prayers be hindered by those things. Don't let those things be on your hands when you're lifting up those holy hands to the Lord. And these things come from a heart that has been quieted by the Lord God. So if a man were living controlled by his passions, right, and uh, controlled by pride, right? A quiet spirit is one that is not controlled by desires and pride anymore. If a man were living, though, controlled by his passions and his pride, what might that look like day to day? Well, he would not get everything he wanted, and that would really bother him, and he'd get angry, Right? And then there would be people who didn't do the things that he wanted to do. And he really want those things. Those things would control him. And so he would begin to fight and quarrel with the people who were not doing the things that he wanted to do. And when he wanted things that the Lord said, no, you you cannot have that, he would not have the strength to follow the Lord's instructions. No, I just want this too much. I can't not do this. And so this man would come into church then and his hands would be stained with anger and quarreling. Any morality. And what's more, if he is ruled by pride in his heart, he's probably not going to pray very much in the first place, right? Why ask God to do something you can just do yourself, right? So if you're filled with pride and ruled by pride, you're not going to go to the Lord with dependence on him and ask him for help. But what about a man who has come to Jesus Christ? He has repented of sins. He has got a better treasure in Christ, and this man has learned to say by the power of the God's Spirit in him, Lord, I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. I'm not ruled by my passionate desires anymore, and I'm not ruled by my pride anymore. Well, what would that look like? Well, he still wouldn't get the things he wants, but he's not ruled by the things he wants anymore, and so he wouldn't erupt in anger in response. And there would still be people in his life who didn't do what he wanted them to do, didn't give him what he wanted. But because he's not ruled by his desires anymore, he's not barking at, fighting at with those people. And there would be things the Lord would keep back from him and say, you can have this good thing and this good thing, but not this good thing. And because he's not ruled by his desires anymore, he would have the strength by God's Spirit to to walk in holiness. And this would be a man who with his pride quelled and quieted would begin to understand, I need the Lord for for everything. How can I if he's a father, how am I gonna lead a family without the Lord's help so he's gonna be praying? all the time. He's going to come here to church and say, how would we grow our church and obey this great commission without the Lord's help, right? Because he's not ruled by pride anymore. So he would pray with dependence on God. So that heart, that gentle, quiet spirit, what Paul says here is a peaceful, quiet, godly life that shows in men's lives when they're able to put away anger, they're able to walk in holiness, they're able to not quarrel so much with people, and they're full of great prayer. And Paul says here that for us men to live like that is essential for fulfilling the Great Commission, right? He wants us to live those kind of lives because it pleases God who desires all people to be saved. So us putting aside differences and getting along as a church, which thank God we've been able to do for a while, uh, that helps to reach people with the gospel of Jesus, how would that look practically? Well, consider the, the two alternatives. Let's say, uh, let's go back to that man who's ruled by pride and desires, right? Uh, he's got people in his life who need Jesus Christ, but because he's fueled by pride, he's not praying for them, right? He's not even remembering them or thinking. He's fueled by what he wants and his pride, so he's not, not praying for them. And when he does pray for them, his prayers are hindered by the anger in his lifestyle and the immorality in his lifestyle and the quarrels that he is going through with all these people. Uh, James says uh, to people who are feuding and fighting. He says, uh, you, you desire and you don't have, and so you covet and you murder. That's what causes fights and quarrels among you. He says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you don't receive because you're asking with wrong motives. Like when we're ruled by our desires and fighting with each other, asking God for things with wrong motives, our prayers are, are hindered, right? The Lord doesn't answer them. Uh, similarly Peter says to husbands he says live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers won't be hindered right guys the short version of this is if we act like jerks it hinders our prayers and so here's a man who's controlled by anger controlled by his desires and when he does remember to pray for the lost people in his life his prayers are are hindered Now imagine in God's kindness, sometimes he answers our prayers anyhow in mercy. Imagine in God's kindness, though, uh, the person that he's praying for comes to church anyway and hears the gospel. But when they come, they find men who are angry with each other, and they find the church feuding, and they see that the people in the church, especially the men of the church, aren't living holy lives and it's time to pray and no one is engaging in the prayer. Everyone's like doodling or playing on their phone during the prayer. And this person who desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ sees all of this, hears the gospel, and is very likely to conclude this message isn't real, right? Hasn't changed these people. It's not going to change me. And so if we do not then let the Lord quiet our spirits, we wind up hindering the progress of the gospel. But look at the flip side, though. Let's, let's say that, uh, that that other man who's no longer controlled by his desires, but the Lord's got a hold of his heart. He prays fervently for his co-worker for two years and then the Lord answers his prayer, and the coworker comes. And, and, and that coworker is in the office all day watching the bosses fight with each other over position and watching everyone go out and get drunk at lunch and then come back. And he's seeing the way that this office lives. And then he walks in here, and he sits down, and he sees men hugging each other and looking each other in the eye and saying, I love you. And he looks around and he says, these people are singing together like they like, they like each other, right? And, uh, and then it comes time to pray and he just sees the, the fervence in the people's prayers. And he just has before him a stark difference between the office he's working in and the church that he has walked into. Now that person has to deal with the fact that this message changes people. Now there is supernatural power at work to show this young man, this middle-aged man, this old man, whoever he is, that this thing is real and Jesus Christ really changes people. And so he's urging us, and men, I'm urging you, live prayer-filled lives with hearts that have been calmed by Jesus, that are no longer after every passion of your heart, being no longer controlled by passions and pride, men, pray. If you're married, find your wife and pray with her. Wake up in the morning and set aside time for scripture and for prayer. If you've got children, gather them around the table and pray together and read the word with them. Come here to church. And when we have that long prayer in the morning, which some of us affectionately call the long prayer, when we have that long prayer in the morning, engage with us and look to the Lord in prayer. And then, Let the holiness of God affect the way that you treat people, right? Put away anger. Put away quarreling. Walk in holiness. And see if a spirit-filled life like that isn't powerful to bring people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, man, that's what it would look like for us if we were to live quiet-spirited lives. Oh, I pray every one of us can do it. And, and guys, i got to commend you. I know so many men in this church who are living this way, and you're making it. But you're part of why this church is growing, so I praise God for you. Well, let's move on to the instructions that he gives to women. Now, I need to say again that the parts we're talking about today apply to both men and women, but he gets specific because certainly in that world and maybe in all ages, uh, there are different things that, that uh, men and women sometimes wrestle with in terms of temptation. And so, when he looks to the ladies, he gives them really clear instruction, uh, simple, just not to wear extravagant or scandalous clothes, especially at church. Um, Now, you can imagine then, we've thought about, okay, if a man lives by pride and by his passions, what would it be like? What's a concrete way that it would show up in a woman's life if she was living by her pride and her passions? Well, one really practical way is, I mean, your heart affects the clothes you choose to buy and the clothes you choose to put on in the morning. And so, she might get dressed in the morning fueled by a desire for attention or fueled by a desire for social status, or even fueled by a desire for immorality, maybe to want to attract somebody that she can go home with that night. The truths in our heart affect even the clothes that we choose to wear. And some of you can look back on your lives and say, yeah, that's what I was like before I came to Christ. And so what would it look like then, Uh, you know, similar for a man, it changes him if he comes to Christ and his heart is quiet. What would it look like then if a woman with her spirit was quiet and no longer controlled by passions and pride? How would that affect the way that she chooses the clothes that she wears? Uh, Paul gives us three words to say what that would look like. Respectable, meaning it conveys moral virtue, clothes that say, I'm a virtuous person, Modesty, which speaks to both an idea of honoring God and honoring others, and that internal sense we all have that there are parts of our body we need to cover up, right? We need to be modest about. Uh, and then self-control, which is something that receives a good gift of God and says this is good, but has the restraint to not go into excess about it. Now, because those are all important, let me spend some time just detailing what each of those mean. The first one we'll go back to, respectable. What does it doesn't mean to dress respectably. It doesn't mean to dress super high class and try to convince everybody that you're in the upper echelon of society. Not that kind of respect. It doesn't mean you need to dress like you work at the White House. Uh, no, it, it means that the clothes you wear need to convey a moral respectability, right? uh, There's, uh, you know. There are social dynamics going on out in the world where, let's say, uh, if a woman is going out with her friends for the night, having innocent fun, just a good time, uh, and she wants to find a man to commit immorality with that night, there's a way that she can dress to communicate that. And the guys see that, and they know what it means, right? There, There are social dynamics going on there. Or if she does not want to live that way, but she wants to live a a chaste lifestyle, she wants to live holy before the Lord, there's a way that she might dress to communicate that. And the guys see that and they know what that means. So our moral respectability, our moral choices, whether we want to live in holiness or not, Oftentimes, we know how to communicate that with the clothes that we're wearing. And he's just really simply saying, choose clothes that send the right message, all right? So that's what it would mean to dress respectably. Dress in a way that conveys your moral character. You're a holy woman of God. He has made you holy. Wear the clothes that send that kind of message. It changes through the ages, but I think all of you know intuitively just what it would be like. The second word is the most complicated and the toughest to translate, the word translated modesty there. Uh, It's only used twice in the New Testament, so it's hard to know just what it means. Uh, Thankfully, it's used a lot in Greek literature, and so it conveys two senses. Uh, First, it conveys a sense of reverence or respect for the Lord and for the people that you're with. Uh, It's possible, let's say a woman's going out on a date. She can wear an outfit that says... I was really not looking forward to going out with you, right? (laughs) Or she can wear an outfit that says, I was really looking forward to going out with you, right? Uh, An outfit that conveys uh, honor to the person that you're with, right? When we come to church, we can wear clothes that say, these people are wonderful, and this God we serve, oh, he's worthy, right? You can wear clothes that say that. Or you can wear clothes that say, man, I don't care. This stuff is stupid, right? You can wear clothes that say that. So your clothes send a message. Once again, no strict rules, but there's general concepts here. Trust in a way that honors the people that you're with. And when you come to church, that honors the Lord that you are before. That's one thing that word for modesty conveys. It also conveys something else. And that is that inner sense that we all have, and this is delicate here, but we all have that inner sense that there are parts of our bodies that need to be covered, right? We all feel that intuitively. Uh, If you were to have a dream that you were walking through Target and realized you didn't have any clothes on, that'd be a bad dream, right? And we tell stories about that, like the nightmare of realizing you were naked in front of everybody. Well, that's a bad dream because we all sense, like, there's parts of me that not just anybody is supposed to see. Uh, that is not a social construct. That is not something that culture made up. Uh, No, that is something that struck our hearts in Genesis 3 the moment we realized we had sinned against God, right? Uh, Before that, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and it says they were naked, and they were not ashamed, right? There's no sense of Modesty, you might say, right? Like a a two-year-old just running around, not realizing they need to have clothes on, right? That's what they were like in the garden. And they sinned against God, and immediately it says their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves. And then later, the Lord in his mercy gave them more cover. He sewed together animal skins and gave them better coverings because he loved them. And ever since then, all of us have reached a point in our lives when we realized, oh, I can't show my whole body to just everybody. He's saying there, by using that word modesty, you might even say Adam and Eve developed a sense of modesty when they realized they had sinned. He's saying there with that word, keep that in mind when you choose your clothes. If, If you feel that way in your heart, I'm not supposed to show everything to everybody. You're not crazy. You're not making that up. That's real, and it's embedded in the heart of humanity. So maybe the simplest application is you know what those parts are. Keep those parts covered, right? Live, live and act with a sense of modesty. The third word is self-control. And that just means to enjoy good things but to know when to stop, right? So if the Lord gives you a, a whole thing of Oreos, a whole bag of Oreos, uh, thankfulness will look up to God and eat a couple of them and say thank God and self-control will stop after two or three right? uh, that, that's how self-control works clothes very much work the same way you can get there are some really cool sneakers out there these days and there's beautiful jewelry you can get and there's nice makeup that you can wear and, and there's so many fun things you can do and thankfulness takes a little bit of that an appropriate amount of that and says this is good God thank you for this And self-control knows when to stop before it gets excessive, right? Before you're wearing the $3,000 Jordans, right? Before you're decked head to toe and so much jewelry that you got to be afraid you're going to get mugged when you walk out on the street. There's a point where it's excessive. And so he says, just exercise some restraint and some self-control. The women in the Roman world were beginning to do something very different though. The The most alluring women of that day uh, were uh, temple workers and prostitutes. They kind of functioned in a similar way to our celebrity women today. Uh, They would wear like three or four hour braids, like have to hire a servant and pay them to do your hair for four hours every day, like that kind of braid. And they would deck themselves in gold and in pearls and in very expensive clothes and this was effective. The men of that day would see it and they would say, oh, wow, I want, I want her. Right. So the, the prostitutes of the day, the cult, the cult temple workers of the day were doing this. And what happened is a kind of similar thing that happens in our world. The ordinary women of the day would see that and they would say, "Ooh, I, I want to look like her. You know what? If I save up, actually, I could hire somebody to do a braid like that for my hair, and I could get really excessive gold and, and braids and, and all of that stuff. Like, I could do that. And so, with a desire to look alluring, like the alluring and scandalous women of the day, they were chasing down that path in excess. And Paul says that that's not how you want to be adorned. You don't want everyone to notice how long your hairstyle took, all Right. God gives good gifts, and so, you know, a five-minute French braid on the way out the door, you know, doing hair nice. That stuff is fun, right? Dying your hair the color that you want it. God gives good gifts. That stuff is fun. But there comes a point where it's excessive. No hard and fast rules, but he says self-control knows when to stop before it gets excessive. So that's essentially what he means here with how we would dress if we were to live with quiet-spirited lives, not ruled by passions, not ruled by pride. It'd be respectable, it'd be modest, and it'd be self-controlled. That is essentially the first and second commandments applied to getting dressed in the morning, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's dressing not to satisfy your desires, but dressing to honor God, honor others, and honor your conscience. Now, let's think about how that would affect church life one way or the other, right? Let's imagine the wrong way first because it's not what's going on here and it'll take work to imagine it. Imagine if the women in our church were outdoing one another with extravagant and scandalous outfits and we're all here and one of them realizes you know what if I walk in the doors in the middle of the sermon everyone is going to turn their heads and look at me right she busts in these doors like a celebrity and we're all oh wow and everybody turns and says oh wow look at her But the bad news for her is that she's about to be upstaged by the next woman who walks through the doors and busts through and makes her grand entrance and says, everyone, look at me. Now, this sounds a little silly, but it can happen and something like it was going on in the first century. And I think you can imagine with me how that would impede the progress of the gospel. Someone is sitting there hearing the preaching of God's Word, if they're even paying attention to it with with all of this elaborate hairstyle and everything else going on, and thinking, well, this is just like the pagan temple down the street, right? These women dress like prostitutes. Like, this message doesn't change people, right? And so now the power of the gospel has been lost, Ladies, I think I know all of you personally here, and uh, I just have to commend you because that kind of stuff, I mean, that sounded ridiculous, didn't it? Like that would never happen in our church. And ladies, because we have so many virtuous women here, Uh, I wonder if you have ever considered that the, the good and right choices you are making when you pick out your clothes in the morning are helpful to lead people to Jesus Christ. Like God is using your holiness to pull people into the gospel. And I wonder if that's even a part of why our church is growing. So here we are, like, guys, I just thank God for you so much. Men who get along and love each other. I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen a man get angry in our church. Very few quarrels, if any. We've put them aside. There are some of the distant past. And women who dress virtuously, And it's clear they love the Lord with the clothes that they're choosing. It's clear they respect him with the clothes they're choosing coming in. Guys, I want you to know that sends a message to the outside world. These people are different, right? This church is a different place. Okay, so that's what not to wear, extravagant or scandalous clothing. But let's think back why do we wear clothes in the first place again? Because we fell into sin, right? And so we immediately reached for something to cover ourselves with, something to adorn us right when we fell into sin. That tells you that there must be some better adornment out there than a $10,000 dress. Must be something better than a thousand dollar pair of Jordans that you can adorn yourself with. Something that won't wind up in goodwill or wind up in your trash can. There's got to be some kind of lasting adornment we can have. And that is exactly what Paul tells us in the very last words of verse 10. Right? Instead, be adorned. Let your adornment be with what is proper for women who profess godliness. That is, good works. Right? When we do good works in the name of the Lord Jesus, we are gaining adornments that never winds up in the trash pile, right? Adornment that lasts forever. And in fact, in Revelation, the, the Righteous ones there are are wearing white robes, like spotless, radiant white robes. And it says the white robes are the righteous deeds of the saints, This is what we are adorned in now. Now, your good works do not determine your identity, right? Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. So you're saying who I am is Jesus died for me. That's who I am. But good works do adorn who you are, right? And beautify what God has made you into. And I think I can speak for a lot of leaders in our church when I say there, there's plenty to do, both in these walls and outside of them. You may have heard in some corners that the teachings of the Bible, especially the hard-to-understand stuff that we're going to go at next week, don't give women a place in the church. And that's because of unpopular words like verse 12. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But we only have to go two verses before that to see how much he wants women to do in our church. He wants them to be adorned and beautified with good works. So there is much place for women in the church. And so what she is doing then, this righteous, quiet-spirited woman, is she is trading the extravagant adornments that worldly clothes can give her, and she is putting on instead good works, which are pleasing in the sight of God and will stick with her to all eternity. We see that actually throughout the whole Bible, Uh, I'm working on a project right now where just yesterday I had to go through every single female character in the Bible and what she did. And let me tell you, I didn't do the math, but there are a lot of women who do a lot of things, some of them very surprising. Uh, Lydia, for instance, is a very wealthy woman who's trading purple cloth. She's working hard, earning a great profit, so that when the apostles come to town and they lead her to Christ, she can command her servants, make quarters for these men, right? There's a woman clothed now in righteousness. Because of her faith in Jesus Christ, uh, back in Genesis, Sarah had so much work to do. Right, the the men of God came to visit Abraham, and he just had to go to Sarah quickly, like really quickly, honey. I need something to put before these guys, please. Somebody. And she just boom, she's getting to work. Like there is so much for her to do. Esther used her diplomatic skill to save the Jewish people from basically an ancient Holocaust. It would have been worse than the 20th century Holocaust if it were not for her diplomacy. A woman named Phoebe served the church with so much distinction that Paul wrote and said, greet this woman, a servant in the church. She is good in the church. There are so many women who followed Jesus around and did so much work with him. There's, you get the point. There is plenty to do. And the same is true around here. You don't just have biblical examples of this, but you've got examples in the pews next to you. Uh, Several women in our church opened up their home like Lydia did and host uh, all kinds of parties and guests and missionaries and all sorts of people. Uh, One woman in our church gives her whole work day and is giving now her whole career to helping women who were once victims of human trafficking recover and, and get back on their feet uh, we've got another woman who's working for a missions agency. Actually, we used to have two. And now, one who's working for a missions agency, sending as many people overseas as possible. Multiple women who spent decades teaching other women and teaching children. Uh, all of our church suppers that are done, all that coordination that has to be done, coordinated by a virtuous woman in our church. And And I'm looking at acoustic panels on the back wall right now. Uh, that you guys can't see because they're behind you, but they were designed and built by a female engineer. There, there's so much for women to do in our church. And all those people and more will be adorned with those good works for all of eternity. The Lord's never going to forget the things that they have done and that they are doing. Those good works are a better covering than anything that Beyonce has ever worn. Anything Taylor Swift's ever rocked out in, right? These are good works that last like jewels in heaven forever. And so those of you that are adorned with them, you need to know I thank God for you. The Lord's using you mightily in our church, all of us. Let, let's put our effort into it. Let's be adorned with good works. We're going to stop there so that we can spend more time on the harder words that follow. Remember that every word of the scripture is good. and It's going to be good when we get there. As we close down, I want to just speak a word to any of you who are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. Maybe when I say things like Jesus and the gospel and some of the stuff just didn't make sense to you. I hope what you've seen here today is that he is a Lord who is good and who changes people. And I hope when you look around and see these people, you see that. I hope he shows you how good he is Uh, because part of why he has you here right now is so that you can hear the message of how you can have a relationship with him again. Um, If you have ever felt far from God in this world, or like this world is missing something, uh, you're not crazy. We are far from God in this world, and this world is missing something. And in fact, we brought that upon ourselves the moment we sinned against God. And you and I have individually brought that on ourselves as we have chosen our own path. We have not walked in God's ways. We have not given our lives to worshiping Him. And the result of that is, is breakdown of relationship. We don't have a relationship with God anymore. Not only that, but because he's the righteous judge of the universe. The Lord promises, I will judge the evildoer. There's there's no sin that will go unmet. And so, we live lives in this world with a a mixture of blessing and hardship, alienated from God. And the hardest news is that there is appointed for every person a day, then we die, and then after that is judgment for all that we have done, right? And... The Lord, we saw earlier in that text, he desires everybody to be saved, right? That doesn't please God. His justice does that. It doesn't please him. What he wants instead is that we will be saved. And he has made that possible. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth and live as both God and man perfectly. Die a death then that pays for the sins of anyone who would come to him, trust him, receive him. And then rise from the dead guaranteeing eternal life forever and resurrection from the dead for anyone who would trust Him and receive Him. And so the important thing I want you to know is that you have a path back to God, a path that so many people around you have taken. What you must do is look to Jesus Christ in faith, say, I believe that you died and rose for me, and I receive that. So if you would receive that in faith, the awesome thing is He would give it to you for free. People ask all the time, what do I do? You You don't do anything. You just trust him, right? You just trust him in faith and he will save you. He will change you too. He will quiet your spirit. And if you have found yourself ruled by pride and ruled by your passions of desires, he will begin to work on that. And you won't be ruled by those things anymore. And with his help, you can live the kind of life that we have been talking about here. So I call everyone here, if you never have before, if you are not right now, put your faith in Jesus. Let me pray for you. Let's pray.